You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. is a great work of the Lord, Satan is always there. And as a disciple of Jesus Christ, we need to know that we need to stand strong in the Lord and the power of His might. We need to know that we need to be ever watchful in prayer so that we are not unaware when Satan comes slithering around, sneaking to see who he can kill or destroy. The father of all lies who comes into the lies of a church and spreads lies and rumors and innuendos and things happen who constantly wants to pull people away. You need to be aware of this. Satan is the father of lies and will try everything in his power to destroy the Lord's work. Today, Pastor Dave warns us in his message that we need to stay strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We are to keep praying and stay watchful so that when the deceptions of Satan come, they will be easy to spot. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of Acts chapter 16 as he begins his message, The Gospel versus Greed. Acts 16, we're going to be looking at the verses 16 through 24 today. Now it happened, as we went to prayer, that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Start out this morning with a little history lesson. Did you know that the Salvation Army was founded in London's East End in the year of 1865? And it was founded by the one-time Methodist minister by the name of William Booth and his wife Catherine. Originally, Booth named the organization the East London Ministries. The name Salvation Army developed from a strange incident. One day, William Booth was dictating a letter to his secretary, George Scott Railton, and said, We are a volunteer army. His son, Bramwell Booth, heard his father and said, Volunteer? I'm no volunteer. I'm a regular. Railton was instructed to cross out the word volunteer and substitute the word salvation. William Booth described the organization's approach. The three S's express bestly the way in which the army is administrated. First, soup. Second, soap. Finally, salvation. Three S's. I like that. 
1880, the Salvation Army started its work in three other countries, Australia, Ireland, and the United States. The Salvation Army's main converts were at first alcoholics, morphine addicts, prostitutes, and other undesirables, unwelcome in polite Christian society. As the Salvation Army grew rapidly in the late 19th century, it generated opposition in England. Opponents, a group under the name of the Skeleton Army, disrupted Salvation Army meetings and gatherings with tactics such as throwing rocks, bones, rats, and tar, as well as physical assaults on members of the Salvation Army. Much of this was led by the pub owners who were losing business because of the Army's opposition to alcohol and targeting frequenters of saloons and public houses. Richard Collier, the historian for the Salvation Army, recorded these words. Persecution was great from the beginning. Gangs frequently hurled mud and stones through the windows at the preacher and the crowd. The liquor dealers worked hard to have Booth kicked out of East London. The police were no help. In fact, they often broke up outdoor meetings and accused Booth's followers of being the cause of all the trouble. Beatings were not uncommon. In 1889, at least 669 Salvation Army members were assaulted. Some were even killed, and many were maimed. Even the children were not immune. Once, some ruffians threw lime in the eyes of the children of a Salvation Army member. The newspapers ridiculed Booth and called him Marshal Von Booth. The commentator R. Kent Hughes says of this, Whenever the preaching of the gospel touches the economic structure of the powers that be, opposition is bound to come. Hence, that leads us right into our story today. Last week, we saw the conversion of Lydia. The woman from Thyatira, the seller of purple, she had heard Paul's conversation with the Jewish women who were gathered at the riverside for prayer. Lydia was there because she was a worshiper of God. She was a Gentile, not a full Jewish proselyte, but she was a Gentile. She was seeking the Lord, seeking God with her heart. And we know that the Lord is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. The Lord was about to ready to give Lydia a heart transplant we talked about last week. He opened her heart to receive God's word that was coming out of the message from Paul and Luke, Silas and Timothy. Lydia received the message and placed her faith in Jesus Christ. She became born again into that living hope, and her life changed immediately. The scripture says that she and her household were baptized, meaning that her entire household saw the change in Lydia, they witnessed this great change in Lydia's life, and they received salvation through Jesus Christ as well, and they became baptized. That's usually how it works. Lydia begged the group to stay at her house. She begged them with persuasive words. So the group stayed. And many, many scholars think a church was born because of that. The church of Philippi. Look at verses 16 and 18. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought our masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And she did this for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he, the spirit, came out that very hour. It's interesting, but it should be no coincidence to us who are Christian that whenever 
Salvation begins to happen. Whenever the Lord is involved in a great work, you can always count that Satan is not far behind. Not far behind to throw a wrench into the works, to try to get people off base, to try to get people confused, to try to have dissension among people. Anytime there's a great work of the Lord, Satan is always there. And as a disciple of Jesus Christ, we need to know that we need to stand strong in the Lord and the power of his might. We need to know that we need to be ever watchful in prayer so that we are not unaware when Satan comes slithering around, sneaking to see who he can kill or destroy. The father of all lies who comes into the lies of a church and spreads lies and rumors and innuendos and things happen. Who constantly wants to pull people away. We need to be aware of this. It happens when salvation runs. It happens when people are seeking the Lord with their whole heart. Satan is there. The group is probably going back to the same place where they met Lydia. It's the place of prayer. Remember we said that because there wasn't a quorum or ten Jewish males, that the group met at the riverside according to what the law stated. There was no synagogue. So they went back to that place. And as they went, they were talking to people. I mean, they had success because of Lydia's salvation, so they were feeling bold, and they were talking to people, and the conversations they had along the way were about Christ and salvation. But this is always a prime time, as I said, for the enemy attack, when a ministry is having success. We must be ever vigilant. We must be heedful and careful to observe and be an observation for the approach of Satan. Last week, we met a very respectable woman, Lydia, as we said. She was a woman of high standing. She was the owner of her own business. She sold purple, a successful businesswoman. Today, we meet a woman of a little bit different character. This woman's a slave, lowest of low, a slave. She's on the bottom of the social scale. She's described here as a certain slave girl with a spirit of divination. Divination is an attempt to foretell the future or discover occult knowledge by interpreting omens or the use of paranormal and supernatural powers. The divination is also associated with witchcraft and other demonic cults. The slave girl tells fortune and makes money for her masters. She probably has a daily quota. And woe to her if she doesn't meet her daily quota. This poor girl had a spirit within her, it says. She was possessed, as I said, with a spirit of divination. It's interesting because when you look at the original Greek wording here, the phrase had a spirit actually reveals a horror. It reveals a horror that was attached to this girl because it literally reads she had a Pythian spirit. She had a spirit of Python. Python was a huge snake that guarded the temple of Apollo. And Apollo was supposed to have killed this snake. But now, everyone who speaks this way and is demon-possessed is said to be a speaker of Python. She had this Pythian spirit, the spirit of Python. Wherever the missionaries went, she would attract attention to them by going, these are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Now, what she's saying is true. She's speaking truth. She's speaking truth out of her mouth. But she continued to do this for many days, and finally Paul, so frustrated, Scripture says he was annoyed at her, that he turned on her and said, come out of you in the name of Jesus Christ, demon. And the demon left her that day. He was so angry. I guess we have to ask the question, 
If what she was saying was true, why didn't Paul allow her to speak? Why did Paul let her go? Why did he silence her? We have to ask that question. Well, I came up with several reasons why Paul silenced the demon. First of all, Paul knew that the Jewish law forbade all sorts of magic. It forbade incantations and magical rites and the dealing with familiar spirits. If Paul was allowed this to continue, then the Jews who knew this lady and were familiar with her spirit would begin to relate Paul to these spirits. And they would reject the testimony that Paul would give about Jesus Christ. Thus, the miracles that the group worked would be given credit to this spirit and not to Jesus Christ. Secondly, the Gentiles, on the other hand, would think that Paul was possessed by the same spirit. They would think that Paul was possessed by the exact same spirit and that they would believe nothing that he would say, nothing being done by the demonic spirit because they wouldn't want anything of it. We've studied how Satan comes in and tries to stop the ministry of Paul several times. Need I say more than the stoning at Lystra? But now, he seems like he's taking another contact. I call it the old can't beat them, join them trick. If you can't beat them at their game, then become one of them and get inside and try to work from there. So he has this girl, demon-possessed girl, walking around saying the truth. These are servants of the Most High God, and they know the way to salvation. Is this any different than any of the demons that Jesus walked up to? They would proclaim, what do we have to do with you, son of the Most High God? Demons proclaiming the name of Jesus. Don't be misled. Demons know who Jesus is. They know exactly who he is. I think another reason that Paul cast this demon out is he didn't want Satan as his PR man. He didn't want Satan to be the one that was proclaiming what the group was doing. Just like Jesus. Every time Jesus met a, a demonic spirit, he cast it out. He cast it away. You know, as disciples, we shouldn't be associated with worldly patterns. There's a danger when we emulate the world, especially when we're advertising the name of Jesus Christ. We've got to be careful when, you, when we emulate the world's view and we don't become any different from what the world is doing. There's a danger there. Paul did not want the gospel of the name of God to be promoted by one of Satan's slaves. It would be like us advertising in a strip club. That's something we're not going to do. We cannot allow the world to dictate what we do or how we operate. And we cannot change the way we operate or how we dictate to get people to come into our church. That's not what we do. We don't do that. I can't tell you how many letters and things I get in the mail every single week. Every single week, my mailbox is full of things. I open it up. How to double your congregation size in three months. How to make your church bigger. How to get to the teens. All this stuff. It's all worldly. It's all worldly advice coming from worldly people. How to double your size in three months. Yeah, okay, I know how to double the size of the church. Preach God's word. Because that's what God's word says. Don't take my word for it. Don't take what I say. Take what God says. Trying to fix a worldly problem with a worldly solution. No. Trying to fix a spiritual problem with a worldly solution? No. It's not going to happen. 
In Acts 2, 47, I'm relieved of all my responsibility if I do the job that the Lord has called me to do, which is to preach his word. You know what Acts 2, 47 says? And the Lord added to the church daily those who would be saved. I don't have to stand out on the steps going, yo, come on, come on in, come in. I don't have to do that. If I do the job that the Lord has called me to do, which is to preach his word and teach his word, the Lord added to the church daily those who would be saved. It's the Lord's job. He's given me a job to do, and I accept it with great relish, and I want to do that to the best of my ability. Pastor Chuck said this, Today the church is spending all sorts of efforts in church growth programs like how to increase your attendance. Many are studying psychology and sociology and making demographic studies of communities and determining what will appeal to the people of this particular community. They tell you what type of advertising program will be most effective, taking polls and census and putting everything together so that we can have a church growth program because we want to add so many numbers to our church. You can get professionals to come in and in all they do is these studies and for a fee, they'll go ahead and develop your whole program. There are other professionals who tell you what you need, and they'll take your money, and they'll give you these fundraising programs. The early church didn't know any of that. The early church didn't do any of that. The early church met together. They studied the Word of God. They broke bread. They fellowshiped, and they prayed. Sound familiar? Acts 2.42. That's what they did. They did that on a regular basis. And then on Acts 2.47, it says, and the Lord added to the church those who would be saved. You might sit there right now be thinking to yourself, oh, come on, Dave, times are different now, are they? Has our God changed? God's hand's not short that he can't save? Or his ear heavy? No. But many people no longer rely on God. They no longer rely on the Holy Spirit. We seek men's devices and men's ways. We look at the world to solve a spiritual problem, as I said. We've forsaken the Word of God, and we go into entertaining programs. We have tried to attract people with lavish program of entertainment. Come and be entertained. I'm sorry if you're here for entertainment. The motto cry of this church is, come and meet Jesus. Come and meet Jesus Christ. And that's the cry that we cry. Because our battle cry is the cross. And you meet Jesus Christ at the cross. That's where salvation is. That's where eternal life begins, at the cross. And that's where we meet Jesus Christ. And that's the battle cry of this church. See, it's the word of God that changes hearts. It's the word of God that changes lives. It's the word of God that brings people to salvation, not entertainment. To have salvation, people have to meet Jesus Christ. Paul cast out that demon in the name of Jesus Christ. He cast out the demon in Jesus' authority, not on his own. Why did Paul wait so long? Why did he put up with this woman constantly at him for such a long time? Well, many believe that he was waiting for the authority of the Holy Spirit to do it. He was waiting on the Holy Spirit to move. Can you imagine what happened to this girl when the demon left her? Can you imagine what she felt? When the chains of bondage were taken away from her? Can you imagine the joy in her heart when she realized she was no longer a slave, but free in Jesus Christ? Man, her heart must have soared because she was in a sorrowful, pitiful state. 
Her life was under the control of a demon and under control of men who could care less about her. To them, she was their gravy train. They didn't care about her. All they cared about was the money that she produced. And when Paul stepped in and threw the demon out, guess what? The money stopped. The chains were broken. She was free. God worked a miracle in her life. She was free. We're not told this, but it is assumed that after the girl received Christ, she became a member of the church at Livia's house. It's not written there, but it's greatly assumed by all the scholars. Anyhow, the demon is cast out. The owners of the girl are now upset because they've lost their gravy train, as I said. Scripture tells us that the fortune-telling brought them much profit. In other words, they got a lot of money from her fortune-telling, and now they don't have the income because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. She provided their income so that we have a battle set. Battle lines are drawn. On one hand, you have an economic system, greed of man. And on the other hand, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a classic battle. We've already studied about this a couple times. Remember the real estate deal gone bad for Ananias and Sapphira <laughs> in Acts 5, 1 through 11? Remember Simon the sorcerer wanted to buy the Holy Spirit? In Acts 8, we studied that. And coming up, there's going to be another big contention in Ephesus, and there's a riot over the fact that they no longer are selling these silver shrines for the goddess Diana because the gospel message is coming in to the community, and it causes a riot. Finally, in Acts 20, Paul talks to the Ephesian elders about the fact that he never took any money from them. Worked for nothing. Made tents on the side. The gospel message coming against an economic system. Do you know this happened in 1516? This happened in 1516 when the economic system of a church came against the gospel message. A man named Johann Tensel was a Dominican friar and a papal commissioner for indulgences. He was sent to Germany by Roman Catholic church people to sell indulgences to rebuild St. Peter and Paul's Basilica in Rome. Roman Catholic theology stated that faith alone, whether it was fiduciary or dogmatic, cannot justify a man. Justification, according to the Catholic Church, rather depends only on such faith that is an active in charity and good works. That's the only way man can be justified. The benefits of good work can be obtained by donating money or buying indulgences from the church. And the more indulgences you bought, the better off you were with God. Buy more indulgences. Well, man stood up to that. A monk, by the way, Catholic monk, on October 31st, October of 1517, this man, Martin Luther, wrote a letter to the bishop protesting the sale of these indulgences. He enclosed in the letter a copy of his disputation of Martin Luther on the power and efficacy of indulgences, which became known as the 95 Thesis. The 95 Thesis that he nailed to the wall of the monastery. Hans Hildebrand writes that Luther had no intention of confronting the church, but saw that his disputation as a scholarly objection to the church practices. And the tone of his writing, according, was searching. He was just searching for the truth rather than trying to come up with doctrine. You are You've been listening to A Sure Hope Radio with Pastor Dave. Pastor Dave comes to us from Calvary Chapel, Cape May, in Cape May, New Jersey. 
In today's message, Pastor Dave is in the book of Acts. In this book, you'll hear about many people who had been eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. They were now going to tell others about Jesus, and many were coming to a saving faith. If these disciples were just following some flash-in-the-pan rabbi, they wouldn't have been so eager to risk their lives for the sake of telling about this good news. No, it's because they saw it lived out, and they saw the greatest miracle of all happen, Jesus dying and then rising again. What an incredible time to live. So when you're facing opposition and persecution for following Jesus, remember that these disciples did too, and they were willing to face the ramifications for such faith. If you're wrestling with what this means to have a saving faith, we'd love to seek God in prayer with and for you. You can email us your requests at info at capewatchradio.com. If you'd rather call, we can chat with you on the phone too. Our number is 609-884-5821. That phone number once more is 609-884-5821. Anything else you'd like to know about can be found on our website, assurehoperadio.com. We've come to the end of our time together for today, but we'll be back next time as Pastor Dave shares some more great things from the Bible here on Assure Hope.